welcome to the Exxon Magazine podcast. Dive deep with us into the mesmerizing world of immersive tech, where we bring you conversations with the trailblazers of XR, AI, and spatial computing. If you're curious about what's on the horizon and eager to be inspired, you're in the right place. Tune in and let's explore the digital frontier together. Today, we have the pleasure of being speaking with Charlie Fink, who writes the weekly Forbes column this week in XR. Charlie Fink also co-hosts its companion podcast. And since 2016, he has been covering AI, XR, and the metaverse for Forbes. Fink is the author of the critically acclaimed AR-enabled books, Charlie Fink's Metaverse, released in 2017, and Convergence, How the World Will Be Painted with Data, in 2019. Fink also teaches at Chapman University and ASU. This sounds super interesting. Charlie actually has a lot to say about his own stories and his own record. And we are very excited to hear from him about his insights related with the evolution of XR. I can't wait to begin. Let's do it. Hi, Charlie. Thank you so, so much for being here with us today. How is everything going in Los Angeles right now? <laughs> it's sunny and hot as it is in much of the northern hemisphere right now. Uh, but uh, I'm comfortable in my air-conditioned house, uh -huh. uh, working away uh, remotely, which I have done for two decades. You know, you know what? This is amazing. I think that this is the future of, of work. I advocate for that. Like some of us that uh, have a creative side sometimes prefer this type of work. And I think that is a blessing when we actually can be where we want to be. So thank you so much for that. So please let us know a little bit about your story, your background. You have such an incredible, you know, record there in the profession. Telling my life story is going to take a little while just because uh, I'm 63 years old. <laughs> so let me start at, in college, I was a writing major but I switched to filmmaking. I didn't even know filmmaking was a subject you could study in college because uh, this was in the 70s. But I actually got a scholarship to go to the Art Institute of Chicago um, to their graduate film program. And I was a teaching assistant there. And uh, after that, so I met my wife there. That was the best thing about Chicago. And uh, I got a job working on different commercials and and Hollywood films that were being shot on location in Chicago. And one of those movies was called Nothing in Common, which starred Tom Hanks and Jer Jackie Gleason, who was an old TV star. I think that was his last appearance before he died. He was 90 years old. The uh, director and producer asked me if I wanted a job in Los Angeles had become available as their story editor. So I said, well, what does a story editor do? And basically you read scripts and run out for coffee. And occasionally you get to sit in on meetings. So it's great. You meet a lot of other young people doing similar jobs. Uh, Hollywood has changed a lot and it is very remote. So that makes it much harder for people entering the business that way. 
because you don't get to network as much and you don't get to work at the studio and you don't get any of that fun stuff that came along with the meh salary that you got in those kinds of positions because you did get real experience that was valuable in building your network and understanding how the industry works. So I was their story editor and I did I connect with a lot of people, including a friend who was working for Bette Midler as her develop, script development person. And she had a friend from actually coincidentally from Chicago uh, who had just been named the vice president of animation at Disney. And he was looking for help in the story department. So I gave him a call, uh, Peter Schneider. He went on to become the chairman of the entire studio. Uh, great, great guy and a terrific mentor. Uh, and I was lucky enough to show up there. They were just had just released The Great Mouse Detective and it was an utter failure. It was a mouse Sherlock Holmes, utter mm -hmm. failure. And uh, the department was about, the median age I think was 55 <laughs> at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I rode that all the way till 1991. I came up with the idea for The Lion King Bambi in Africa in uh, 1987 or early 1988. And, you know, they, I mean, for my sins, they promoted me to a VP for a while. I was the youngest uh, creative VP at the company. And for my sins, I got moved over to live action, which was something that I wanted, uh, but it was horrible, horrible experience there. I worked on a great movie for which uh, my then boss was uh, utterly critical of my handling of it. It was a movie called Nothing, uh, called Incredible Journey uh, about three pets who have to find their way home. And it's a real tearjerker. And, uh, you know, I had a, very, a lot to do with the movie. So it's funny that it was another $2 billion franchise that I got no credit for. Uh, I moved from there to a company that was being formed by Tim Disney called Virtual World. Virtual World was networked flight simulators presented in grown-up arcades. And we built about 33 of these arcades in four years, which is the speed of light in the real estate business. Uh, the They did very well at first. But then because of the internet and it was very hard to produce a lot of experiences for only 33 locations and mm -hmm. for a lot of different reasons, the business was kind of declining. So we split the business up. The part of it was sold to Microsoft and that became the core team of Xbox in 1996. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the retail division uh, liquidated its real estate and sold the simulator business to Dave and Buster's and, and they ran our pods. Uh, which um, had huge parabolic mirrors. So you sort of sat in a cockpit with a wraparound window. And what it did was it made me a digital media executive, uh, which in 1995 and 1996, I mean, today everybody is a digital media executive. But then you couldn't even pretend to be it, but I could pretend to be it. And they hired me and, you know, I was riding on the Disney thing, the Disney, I was just telling uh, a young mentee of mine uh, who is up for a job at Disney that even though Disney was offering him half the money he was making uh, at Accenture, the brand 
you know, he's going to coast on that brand for, you know, Disney promotes young, ambitious young people. They pay you nothing, but you get the, you get to be in the alumni association mm -hmm. and you get to coast on it for, for the rest of your life. So it was a great experience. It's really hard to work at a movie studio, uh, but it's really hard to work at any job if you want to be great. The uh, time at AOL was a terrific time. It was the birth of the internet in a way. It remi AI reminds me a little bit of that moment, right? I mean, the when I saw the Mosaic browser in 1993, I almost fell off my chair. We were using the quote unquote internet. There were bulletin board services for companies in our business. We had a little website that won a lot of awards because there were no websites in 1994. <laughs> uh, and uh, we were using email to communicate. So when this came along, of course, we were very digital and wired. And so we saw it right away and it completely blew my mind, right? Because it was going to change everything. But of course, we didn't know how. We just knew it would, right? No more gatekeepers. Obviously, search was going to be valuable. And then, you know, AOL came along and they combined a lot of the different technologies that you had to master, like TCP IP and IRC chat, if you wanted to have a similar experience on the internet. So, uh, and AOL recruited me. And I was really excited to go there. We moved from, I had small children at that time, young children. And we moved to Vienna, Virginia, where I began my career as a senior vice president in AOL content creation. And AOL was very mixed about whether it should create its own content or whether it should license content from companies like ABC and NBC. And the company waffled on that the entire time I was there, right? Because they could at, at, they turned the tables on the, MS, the NBCs of the world. Right, Because at some point, AOL was paying them a license fee. And then at some point, AOL was saying, no, if you want to be on AOL, you have to pay us. So they completely changed uh, the business model. And all of this is buffeting content creation all over the place. So it was kind of a crazy place to work uh, in the 90s. But you really got to see the internet bubble from the inside. When I left AOL, I started another company called eAgents, and it essentially was a Yahoo homepage in your inbox, mm -hmm. right? Because in 1999, the first thing everybody did when they logged on was they went to their inbox, right? Consuming the news was not the first thing everybody did then. Following the stock market was not what everybody did then. Looking to see what your friends are doing was not what everybody did then. That was a very, very different world. Not only, and and the biggest difference is, uh, honestly, it was pre-mobile. Mobile was another inflection point mm -hmm. that put the internet and in particular uh, social networks on steroids. So all this I got to experience. I sold the e-agents company that I founded to American Greetings in Cleveland. Uh, I became their the president and chief creative officer of their dot-com division and worked there through 2004. Uh, we bought our two biggest competitors, Blue Mountain and e-greetings. Blue Mountain being at that time one of the largest websites in the world. It's a greeting card site. <laughs> Uh, of course, not too many people send e-greetings today, except for your crazy geriatric aunt. So, uh, but at least at that time, we took the business from free to fee, meaning it became a freemium site, which again, at that time, that would be, that would have been 2001. 
And I think at that time that we were one of the first companies to do that. We, it massively made our business much smaller, much leaner. We were no longer the number one largest website in the world. We dropped down to like number 200, but who cares that, that, you know, people, tens of millions of people were paying us. So it became the most profitable part of American greetings. It may still be, I don't know what the greeting, the, you know, they're Jackie Lawson and a bunch of other brands that they own that I think people do send. Fortunately, I see few of them. Uh, I think American greetings missed social media uh, and that was unfortunate for them. But I left in uh, 2005 and I thought, wow, I've been working as an executive. I never wanted to be an executive. I always wanted, you know, when I, traveled to Hollywood to work for Gary Marshall, I was not thinking I'm going to become an executive. Uh, I was thinking I'd like to work at a studio, but I had no idea what jobs people had at movie studios. Uh, you know, I didn't know what a development person was. So I learned all this while I was working as a, an assistant. And by the way, assistants don't get paid today. They're unpaid interns. And in those days, ambitious young people would get jobs like this and the studios would pay them. Not a lot, you know, four or 500 a week, but that was a lot of money that, you know, compared to today, that today that would be like a thousand dollars a week. And I, you know, don't think there are many 20 somethings working for, for that much. Uh, in, in any event, um, I worked on uh, a lot of startups with different people, none of which really turned out to be anything. Uh, I worked in musical theater. I became the chairman of the New York musical festival. I did that for Almost 10 years, I guess 10 years, uh, but stopped in 2017. But, you know, by 2014, I was getting kind of tired of theater and I recognized that I wasn't great at it and wasn't going to really be a money-making producer anytime soon. Uh, I just, you know, and I hate doing something that I can't be the best at. Mm. You know, but I'm a fixer, right? I always think I could turn it around, but mm -hmm. sometimes an idea... Uh, that, you know, sometimes a problem uh, resists all attempts to change it and it's no longer a problem, it's reality. So faced with that reality, I wanted to get back into tech. I felt like I had developed relationships and and uh, learned about things and and was able to listen to and be in the room with people who were incredibly smart, like people like Mark Andreessen and Steve Case and Ted Leonsis. You know, and you just learn. And so, you know, I felt like I was missing that, but it was too late. Nobody hires a 55-year-old ex-CEO who isn't relevant anymore. Uh, I really sympathize with people in their 50s who have to make a pivot because as you can see from my story, I made plenty of pivots in my lifetime and in my career. I think I'm on my fourth pivot, maybe. <laughs> and most people don't get that many pivots. I'm extremely lucky because... Uh, I started to write a blog. I kind of interested in writing a book uh, about my time at Disney or something. I don't know. And uh, I started a blog and I got nothing but crickets. I mean, I had about a thousand followers on social media and I was following lots of people, you know, in tech and I uh, wasn't getting anywhere. But I ran into an old friend actually from Disney who said, well, you were Mr. VR in the 90s with the simulator thing. You should be writing about VR. It's a really big thing now. And, and of course, I, I kind of dismissed it at first, but then I thought, you know what I'm writing about is not uh, 
is not engaging people. Maybe I should write about something that somebody else thinks I should write about. So I took a couple of weeks and I did a lot of research and wrote a very long story for the internet, like a 1500, 2000 word feature about VR and AR. This is the fall of 2016. It explodes. It gets more views than all of the 25 other stories put together. People start emailing me. So, you know, you get, you know, uh, a dopamine hit. You say, I'm going to write another blog post just like that one. Mm -hmm. And I wrote another one and another one. And, you know, something was happening. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to CES and I was a nobody with a blog and people in VR thought I was somebody. I'm like, you read my blog? And then the phone rings and it's the chief creative officer of Forbes who hires me to cover VR for them. Oh, wow. <laughs> and when you get the imprimatur of a brand like Forbes, it's like working at Disney. Suddenly all the doors are open. You have instant credibility. People want you to speak at their conferences. It's, uh, it was extraordinary. And, and there were some people who were still doing it that I knew crazily from the 90s who were in one aspect of it or another as genuine ogs and it was good to be reunited with those people those were good relationships and people it's a very close-knit community uh that's getting bigger and bigger uh you know there continues to be exciting developments fortunately for me uh my swim lane as you call it is xr which is ar and vr together and, and all similar augmentative devices, arguably even cell phones and uh, AI, which is exploding right now. And, and I talked a lot about the metaverse. In fact, my first book was called Charlie Fink's Metaverse. And it's an AR enabled book that you read with a smartphone in your hand and animations pop out of the book. So it walks the walk and talks the talk. Uh, so today I have four jobs. One job is that I continue to write for Forbes, uh, and I have a popular column called This Week in XR, which covers developments in XR and AI that I think are important. So it's a column. It's not a news thing, although it is about the news, and, and we do have an obligation to be as accurate as we can. Um, I have the companion pod This Week in XR podcast, which, as I said, just broke into the iTunes top 50 for tech podcasts. Uh, out of 90,000. Uh, my co-hosts are Ted, Lee, uh, Ted, Schwart <laughs> Ted Shilowitz, who is the futurist for Viacom and Paramount Global, and Roni Abovitz, who is the former founder and CEO of Magic Leap. So those are two guys that people like to hear from. I do the, I'm sort of the straight man and they provide the color and then we bring in a guest. It's like, um, you know, I run into all these people uh, in my travels writing and speaking so it, we have unbelievable guests and it's getting better because everybody wants to talk to roni uh, <laughs> uh in addition to that i'm a college professor so between those two things that's like 65 percent of my time and 15 percent of my income because i do travel all over the world talking about new technologies and i um uh, and i consult with companies on on their storytelling and messaging and you know principally middleware companies that have a hard time explaining what they do and where they live in the ecosystem to financial people and non-technical people and even technical people in a way 
uh, if you're not in that niche, may not understand it. So that's actually a nice and very consistent business. Uh, the speaking business at the moment, I don't know, because I'm thinking people aren't too interested in talking about the metaverse. And I don't know how established my AI cred is. I work on that every day. Uh, so how did I become an expert in AR and VR? Well, uh, obviously, I had my grounding in what we were doing in the 90s with networked flight simulators. But, you know, my crash course is the past seven years of talking to everybody, of sitting in the audience at conferences, reading everything I can, reading books, uh, and, you know, trying to get close to smart, successful people in this industry. So that's what I do every day. That is why you called me. That is why I'm here. Uh, I am a cat that has had many lives, as you said, uh, but I'm, you know, happy to be engaged and relevant, which mm -hmm. was, you know, something I didn't think seven years ago I would ever be again. Amazing. Wow. Like, it's like, wow, all that story is incredible. Um, it's not it's easy to tell that story, even in the 15 minutes I just took yeah. to do it. Oh, it's okay. You know, it's fine. I I think one of the things that I want to highlight here is when you mentioned that you're compassionate with those ones who have to maybe are at 50 and have to make pivots in their career. I think that that's a gold uh, point there as well. You're a great example of that. Because as we see in our traditional careers, let's say engineering, architecture, etc., that we see all of these technologies, we feel, okay, in what direction do I need to go now? Because we don't want, we want to continue to be relevant in some way sometimes. So I've seen myself, many people having to face that at 40s, at 50s, and being very scared, uncertain. And I think that um, we continue to be trusting, you know, that if we start to, to use, to learn, as you say, learning, um, nurturing relationships, et cetera, Somehow we start to find maybe some paths there, but it's great that you said it, said it. Yeah, because usually we perceive people that have certain recognition in the industry as if that happened by magic, but there is a whole story behind, right? Like that for these things to happen. So I wanted to highlight, highlight that. Yes, I, I would say this to the young people, not the older people, but the young people, you're going to have 40 jobs in the course of your life, uh, according to several studies. So that is a very, very different experience. It's more similar to mine uh, of late, but uh, that is not an, you know, people stayed at company for 10, 11 years, mm -hmm. as I did with Disney, and that is not normal now. I think if you were at a company for three or four years, that's about, at least in the tech industry, how long people stay around. Uh, you know, maybe in, in you know, big fortune 500 companies uh it's different uh, but that's certainly the way it is if you're in any creative industry uh the other thing i would say and i say this to everybody who works in a skills-based job uh, you have to stay current with the best tools and the best tools are coming to uh, every device and every app that you use now, since there are a lot of designers and creative people, I urge you on uh, Photoshop and Adobe's other apps like Arrow uh, to use. They have integrated mm -hmm. as one of your options to create AI scenes. It's a little harder than it sounds, but they're using a database of 35 million images licensed from Getty, I believe. 
And so the resulting images that the generative AI model creates uh, have the same qualities of the ones from Dolly and Stable Diffusion, but they have the advantage of not being, uh, you know, not having basically stolen the content from the internet. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes a, a difference. So you have to stay current with the tools, yeah. you know, and and that is difficult. It is a pain in the ass, and tools are changing so quickly. Every but day. if you want to remain relevant, it's really not optional. Becoming an expert in AI is—I don't look at that as optional for me. Mm. I think my students are not interested in VR anymore. They want to hear about AI. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's interesting. Speaking about that, I, I can see an interesting intersection actually between. By, by the way, I should say my undergraduates, my graduate yeah. students have, uh, you know, yeah. other motivations than undergrad undergraduates who are, you know, just trying to learn about what's hot. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. I can see an inter interesting intersection between XR and AI. And I think that we're moving also uh, discovering, right? Understanding how that, that could happen, how that's, that is going to look like. One of the questions that I had with you for you, actually, now that we're speaking about tools, you know, things that are available, th there is so much and actually it's so easy to put our hands in those ones because some of those ones have free tires where we can start experimenting. How do you see the evolution of human-computer interaction shaping the future of XR? And this is, uh, I'm, I'm saying that especially as we move away maybe from- If, if no Roni were here- he would say AI is what XR has been waiting for. <laughs> yeah, they, they, because they, a wearable they, device yeah. has to know who you are, where you are, and what you want to do there. So I'll give you the other thing is it has to take something that we're already doing and make it better. That's its superpower, mm -hmm. right? That's the superpower of email, Yeah. right? Because it's so much better than its analog predecessor. You know, so uh, for glasses, I honestly think now, of course, for a novelty or to do stereography or something that glasses are necessary, but then you take them off when you're done. It's a tool, mm -hmm. but uh, for, to have them integrated into your regular glasses. Well, first of all, there's a tremendous amount of friction, right? You'd have to charge the glasses. You have to carry around your regular glasses because if they stop working or they get hot or whatever, or run out of batteries, you, you got to have the analog solution with you. Uh, especially if you're a guy, that means carrying stuff. Now, what is it going to do for you? What is the killer app? Why would you go through that inconvenience and that expense? Mm -hmm. Well, one example would be vision correction, right? 50% of the people in the world wear glasses. So what if your glasses are not photosensitive lenses, but they're contextual lenses, meaning they know when you're driving at sunset, they know when you're reading in the dark, they, you know, adjust to what you are doing. Are you reading? Are you cooking? Are you driving? Right. I'd wear those glasses. And then if they could throw in some things, yeah, those are nice to have, but most of the things it's going to throw in there are done perfectly well on smartphones and with audio. So I don't know that it's going to be better to I get I get my uh, directions on my windshield inside of my Volvo. I I don't need so that's augmented reality. You know, it's a crude reflection of a screen inside the dashboard, but it's I don't have to do anything. It's it's friction free. Mm 
So one way this may play out is not with headsets, but it's all of our devices and everything mm. around us doing those things and, and making projections when we need them. There's another company that uh, is announced it will have a product later this year. It's a mini computer you wear like, uh, you know, I, I you, you'll see people like they do with an earphone, just walking around with it like this. And if you want to project something, you can hold up your wrist for a second or hold up your palm or do it, you know, on a table. Um, but otherwise it's your AI audio assistant. Mm -hmm. So I think that could, I mean, lots of people love Alexa. I think that could be a thing. So I don't know if it's going to be glasses mm -hmm. and I'm, you know, wait and see. I love this story. I love following this story. I don't know how it's going to turn out. Nobody does. Yeah. The timing is everything in tech. If mm -hmm. I could divine the timing, you know, I'd be a billionaire, but uh, there are, um, they continue to be lots of opportunities in extended reality, even without people having to wear glasses. Yeah. You know, the smartphone is an AR machine. Mm -hmm. Pokemon Go is augmented reality. You, you know, most of every time you use a Snapchat filter, you're using augmented reality. So AR is, is already out there, but do we need glasses for it? Again, I, I like Snap's approach. Right there, where you wear glasses at locations where there is content. So you're still carrying another pair of glasses with mm -hmm. you, but you're doing it for pur purposely, mm -hmm. right? Oh, we're going to go to Times Square to see the AR there, mm -hmm. and you'll bring your glasses. I think I think I like. Oh, of course, yeah. That um, we we don't necessarily. This is a, a holistic advancement of technologies that involves devices that are regular to us around smart homes, all of these uh, type of things. This is what is also part of what is called spatial computing. It's not yes. only a headset, it's all the whole holistic. Exactly. Um, yeah. That was the thing about the metaverse, right? It was a spatial environment where we could synchronously interact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't the metaverse as a word is thoroughly discredited, but 3D virtual worlds continue to be, um, you know, consumed by hundreds of millions of people every day, mm -hmm. because when you're playing a open sandbox game like Call of Duty mm -hmm. or you're on Roblox or Rec Room interacting with people on all different devices. But what you have in common is that you're present in this shared space, a.k.a. the metaverse. Yeah. yeah. Now all the hype and it's going to be worth a trillion dollars. I mean, I don't know, mm -hmm. but that it exists. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, there are many aspects of it in development that are slowly coming together. So, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to have amazing metaverses. Mm -hmm. And you're starting to see Fortnite creative and other sites, uh, you know, like Roblox uh, offering very comprehensive experiences and in many ways, it's it's better than XR. I hate to say it. You know, XR games are, uh, some of them are great, um, but most of them don't have the long-term playability that you get from a similar game on a PC or a console. So it's not as good of a value. I don't think gamers value their experiences with VR as much as they do with mm -hmm. games like Call of Duty which are, or Fortnite, which are intimate to them. Yeah. If there was Fortnite VR, they might do it. There's a game on uh, the Quest called Population One, which is a version of Fortnite that is quite popular. 
So, I mean, 3D virtual worlds are definitely a big deal. And I don't think that people understood that they weren't just for games, mm -hmm. but how it will be implemented across all of these businesses is uh, as yet unclear. I do think uh, one thing about the metaverse that I did find compelling, uh, and I think we alluded to this a minute ago, is it's synchronicity, right? We have come from an age where everything had to be synchronous. But if my wife and I wanted to make a date in 1981, I had to call her on the phone and she had to be home. Mm -hmm. Right. We had to be synchronously present. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, answering machines and smart, uh, you know, <laughs> and the Internet and smartphones all did away with that. Right. We live in this convenient uh, asynchronous world. But I think the pandemic left a lot of people saying, why can't I be present with multiple people? And you can on Zoom to a certain extent like we're doing right now. But once you get a bunch of chicklets up there and it's a dozen people, it becomes very, very hard to connect with any one of them. Uh, and you can't have side conversations and all the good things about being live are, are lost. So. Uh, that's also the thing about remote work. I think remote work is, uh, in a way, exploitive of a lot of skilled people mm -hmm. because they're saving money by making you, you know, their goal is to turn you into a contractor and you don't have any relationships with the executives, really. So you're vulnerable, disposable. So it commoditizes the, the labor of creative people. I think that is the worst trend that is going on right now. But on the other hand, the creative people have unprecedented power with the AI tools that are coming uh, online every day. Yeah. And speaking about that, there are, there are specific talks that are, uh, arise from all of these emerging um maybe particularly with AI. Um, one of those ones are those ethical boundaries, because as we push those mm. boundaries of immersive experience, I wonder what ethical considerations should creators, in your opinion, prioritize to ensure well-being while navigating this uh, evolution? Well, you are at risk. Artists are at risk using platforms like Dolly and... Um stable diffusion because they are made up of Im images harvested from the internet, many of which are copyrighted. Mm. And it also, you know, crawled YouTube. So there's content on YouTube, which is copyrighted. Mm. And even though you can't tell, it's just mushed into their giant database without permission. So if you are creating something for a client or for yourself that you want to sell, the only way to make sure that your rights are clear is to use a platform like Photoshop, where Adobe is indemnifying all its users. Mm. So, but they, again, they have the license from Getty. There is nothing else in there. So if there's something in there that's not licensed, that's because of Getty not because of mm. um, Adobe. Yeah. So, so, but uh, using the unlicensed platforms, you're taking your chances. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and the other uh, aspect there in terms of et ethics and stuff that happens is that this maybe is a little related with XR, with the design that happens or creations in XR, which is that how can we make sure that the designs, creations that we make considering that the platforms are available there and we can create anything, 
how can we make sure that those designs or those creations are inclusive and accessible? Because that's those another of the aspects that people wonder very often. Like how, how do you think that can be fostered when designing or creating experiences? Well, that's a complicated question that I don't have great perspective on because I don't work with designers in my present occupation. You know, I think that, as I said, just to answer the question indirectly, you have to learn the tools. That means watching a lot of YouTube videos and experimenting. And that's a pain in the ass, especially if you have an established way of doing things, but the established way of doing things is about to change. Mm -hmm. So embrace the change, be the change. Uh, no matter how tired you are, no matter how, you know, this is super true of established people, right? You don't want to get lapped by your assistants. So the de design considerations to me, uh, AI is going to whisper in your ear as you make your design, showing you different ways, suggesting different ways. I, I think, you know, it's a tool and, you know, great artists with better tools will make better things. Mm -hmm. So I think that you have nothing to fear, but not doing the work of becoming current mm -hmm. because someone who has your skills, but is current and has the, and is augmented by the skills that AR imbues on creators would have a huge advantage. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I would also say, by the way, for people who are 55 and struggling, uh, this is a great opportunity. You know, there, there are going to be so many opportunities in the uh, industry for people who help train models and, you know, tag data. I mean, a lot of, Trading models is about data analysis and, and putting meta tags on data. So, you know, there are tons of jobs out there. You have to acquire some skills, but, you know, you could do it in six months or three months if you were sort of, especially if you were unemployed, you know, just learning it would be your new job, but it's hard. I mean, it is hard. Mm -hmm. I didn't volunteer to do this. I could have lived without it. <laughs> yes and, and and you are an author actually um so so you might have a specific view on the transformation of you know content as well how you know it's, it's the way that we consume the content as well so how do you think that that transformation will continue to evolve now with ai of transforming you know as an author like what transformations can happen there for an author um, well, I'll give you a quick example. And I just thought of this. I should probably do it because my first two books, Metaverse and Confu Convergence, are tech books that are five and six years old and are not that relevant, I don't think. I also think there are many, many other great books out there. What a book generally does for an author and it did for me was it is the fact of being an author. It is a fact that the book exists that confers upon you the honors of calling yourself an author because very few people actually read the whole book. I think people looked at the cartoons in my book and called it a day because they know most of the stuff that's in that book anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but they're, you know, they're good books. I'm a good writer. So, but they're just not completely up to date. Mm -hmm. um, I could take those books and put them 
as a training model, you know, on top of a language model. And I could say, please write um, a series of TikTok videos that explain all the content in this book. Mm. Now, it would take me forever to do that. And why do I say I would do that? Because then I'll pick the 50 that are relevant and send them to my students and they will look at them. Because if I give them that huge, heavy mm. book, they're not going to read it. Okay. So... It's funny too, the first book, Metaverse, is out of print. You can't find one for love or money. I've seen it on uh, Amazon and, uh, you know, in their used bookstore and uh, elsewhere for a ridiculous amount of money. I'm like, oh, I didn't keep an extra box. Uh (laughs) So it's not like nobody is interested in it, but it's a collectory nerdy thing uh, Mm -hmm. at this point. But I'm just using that example, not to brag about my book, (laughs) but to say, to make that book relevant to students who don't read books. Mm -hmm. So this is my problem, right? I have to deliver my course content, but the students don't want to receive it the way Mm -hmm. I want to give it. I have to meet them where they are, or they're not going to get the information. So, you know, I have considered, doing something like that to get them the information mm. but i maybe i should figure out how to get ai to to do that for me that sounds pretty cool but then you have to record yourself doing all the con- that content something like that. <laughs> ah, it doesn't necessarily maybe there is a way that ai can do that work as well with another platform but that's an interesting conversation uh, because is that 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 shows an example of the transformation of the content and the transformation of how we receive the content and how that we have to meet them where they are as great insight there as, especially for the ones that also are thinking in that evolution yeah i think that is being such a great conversation like there is there is the time is super limited of course because there yeah. is so many things interesting to talk about well if you want to get more of me uh this week in xr podcast comes out every friday afternoon and we have great industry guests and as i said my co-hosts are celebrities and they have a lot to say about a lot yeah yeah amazing thank you so much and uh, we're inviting any of your your uh, you know ne- in your networks to get to know about this episode some of your friends your family share it with them because uh, Charlie Fink is someone who we always feel that there is something new to learn from him. Thank you so much, Charlie, for being here today. My pleasure, Diana. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye.